Debbie George Addis, welcome to my show, America Can We Talk. Today we're going to be talking about the college bribery scandal. The Senate voted against President Trump on his emergency declaration. I want to talk about is this really an emergency? And third, the Marxist mob mentality plaguing America. Time to fight back. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. America Can We Talk is sponsored by GC Works, a Dallas-based company performing advanced technology research in the oil and gas industry. And welcome back to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis, and welcome to my first five. You've probably been reading about this scandal that's emerged involving very wealthy parents, some of them being Hollywood types, whose children were admitted to prestigious colleges using an unbelievable scandal. Um, You could call it a hoax, but it's a scandal, really. And I want to talk about first how it was accomplished, but second, what it says about America, what we should do about it, and what colleges should do about it. But to start with, there was an organization created by a man, a kind of guy who masterminded the whole thing. Um, This is a gentleman named Rick Singer, or William Rick Singer, and he came up with this idea um, that he created a charity, it was actually a charity used for cover in this thing. Uh, The charity was called Key Worldwide Foundation. And the, the... thing was, the uh, trick of it was, rich people could donate money to this organization, allegedly a charity to help people, help kids learn about college, help low-income kids, you know, all the nice-sounding charity things. But it was called the Key Worldwide Foundation. Wealthy parents could donate toward it. And what this organization does was simply, did, was simply mind-blowing. They got kids actual uh, admission to high-ranking schools, to uh, the very prestigious colleges and universities in this country, often even pretending that the particular student was an athlete, was talented enough and a successful enough athletic record to entice the school to admit the kid to college to play that sport in college. So this worldwide, uh, this uh, key worldwide foundation, uh, Rick Singer's group, actually had um, would claim they're going to help these parents. Um, in fact, it's described as a um, as an effort to um, fast track students for admission, mission using designated recruiting slots. Officials said, blah blah blah. The point is, they went to such lengths as photoshopping a student's face onto the body of a real athlete. And so they could show the school that, yeah, look at this, here he is playing whatever the sport was, or she is, football, you know, whatever the sport was, basketball, I mean, girls' sports were involved. It was a massive and astonishingly complex effort to get 
kids into schools they might not otherwise be qualified they probably weren't otherwise qualified to get into um, they had staged photographs of their children engaged in particular sports uh, using stock photos photoshopping the face of the child on the athlete they have recorded conversations between the gentleman the guy who founded this key worldwide foundation um, and parents obviously famous parents hollywood types got their kids into colleges using this and so there's been a big, you know, perp walk kind of arrests of some of the parents involved. And there's actually involves, it was a federal sting. It was an actual sting. They, they, it, not, it wasn't set up as a sting, but a long-term investigation where kids ended up uh, in college, actually already admitted into the schools when they finally um, cracked down on it. So, they've, of course, the founder of this charity, alleged charity, is non-charity, Rick Singer, um, he's actually already pled guilty. Um, he's at the center of this massive college admissions cheating scandal. Many famous parents involved, some of the Hollywood types had to pay like a million dollar bond to be freed. I mean, it really is being taken very seriously. And obviously, a lot of students, a lot of parents who save their whole lives, parents save their lives to pay for their, college, their kids' college education, you know, started a savings account when the kid was little, you know, pay, donated into it, kept building up their nest egg to pay for their child's education. And students who worked hard, played by the rules, got good grades, actually played sports, got good test scores, they didn't get the slots that these purchased uh, admissions did get. They, this, um, this scandal was so massive, it actually, actually also involved having other people take the standardized tests for these students. So it's a completely manufactured student profile sent to the school, manufactured with Photoshop uh, athleticism, you know, test scores, just everything needed to mold and shape a student's application so they could be admitted to the school. On top of that, at some of these schools, and these are premier schools, some of these schools, there was actually arrests of the or suspensions and terminations of coaches, coaches having accepted bribes, agreeing to take a student on and to recommend the student for admission when they knew that they were actually being paid money uh, to make that recommendation. A student wasn't qualified for that sport. So you had coaches involved, you had administrators involved, you have many schools firing or suspending uh, coaches involved in this scandal. I'm not going to go into the names as much. I mean, the schools, by the way, they're, as I mentioned, many of the premier uh, schools, I know my own law school uh, alumni, um, I went to Georgetown for law school, and they are on the list. Um, but actually, University of Texas, where I live now, I'm a, a premier university in Texas. Um, they have uh, USC, um, University of Southern California, Yale, Stanford, Georgetown, Wake Forest, really prominent schools. So... It's a great thing that this was busted up. It's a great thing. And by the way, this charity, this charity that people gave money to, the parents gave money to, was actually set up as a real charity, a 501c3. So parents could actually deduct on their taxes donations made to this charity, a full service scandal, full service, get your kid into college, concoct a resume, concoct an athletic experience, and on top of that, the parents could take a tax deduction for the money they paid to the charity that was in turn paid to these various schools, coaches, administrators, whoever it was was taking money. So I love that it got busted up. But I will say, part of what really is, uh, and, and you know, there's many more issues are related to this I want to touch on briefly, and I don't have a bunch of time, but I want to just hit on one. 
So I had a good friend of mine who is a um, left wing. Uh, she's a left winger. She's often very, you know, she often defends the Hollywood types. Of course, all the headlines or a lot of the headlines in this story relate to people in Hollywood and how, you know, they think they're so elite and so special and they can buy their way into anything and blah, blah. And so she's a left winger. And so she's often defending the Hollywood types. And she was saying, she said to me on the phone, what do you think the difference is between this clearly illegal, you know, going to be prosecuted, people may go to prison, big fines are going to be paid, and the fact that many wealthy parents actually make donations directly to universities with the expectation or even perhaps in exchange for their son or daughter being admitted. It's not the same. This, the crime in this case, the worldwide uh, key worldwide foundation uh, is bribery is one of the crimes being charged certainly the uh, you know taking the tax deduction weren't allowed to be do, uh, doing paying bribes uh, all that is criminal but what did she say what about the parents who just donate money to universities in exchange for an agreement by the university that their child who may or may not be the best qualified of all you know is then admitted and you know it's a harder question because I, I'll tell you folks the big issue is transparency and being honest, because I do think many of the, especially private universities, they simply don't have enough money based on the tuitions they receive from parents who pay, based on whatever federal or state money they get or other sources of money and alumni donations, they don't have enough to do all they want to for the students. So a board of a college may say, you know what? We need more money. We got these five kids who've applied. Their parents collectively together could donate, you know, 100 million, whatever the number is. If a student, if a college decides to do that, I understand that it's not fair. And, you know, I've never been in a position to do that, but it's not fair to qualify students whose parents cannot do that. But it is a different thing. It's a different thing, especially if a college is to say, you know what? Yeah, sometimes we give a little leeway to some applicants um, on their admission in the admission process if, if their parents are going to be able to help us pay for things we couldn't otherwise pay for, donate money toward a building. It gets a little fuzzier, and I don't, it's, it's obviously not criminal for the schools to do that. And But it's a really interesting um, point about what colleges should, and should do and should not do because I think that you, know, you, you have this dream of your child being admitted to college, you do everything you can to convince your child to stay in school, get good grades, perform well, do extracurricular activities, you know, don't get in trouble, all the things, and, and study for your test and do a great job in the standardized tests. And then you have a kid who's really not done all as nearly as much getting admitted. You know, I think at the end of the day, the kind of left-wing criticism of what about parents who buy their, way, their kids' way into college is there's a transparency thing. That I think as long as colleges are honest about it, yeah, sometimes we're, we'll bend the rules a little bit or we'll give weight to a, a child a parent donating money. I think the other thing about it is there's a, an unrealistic um, expectation that the world is 100% fair. It's not. It's, it's not, and you're, you can't make it fair. You can't make the whole admission process fair. You could gripe about a lot of different things that aren't fair about the admission process, including low-income children who did not get as quality education in the public schools in their area, do not have the capacity to have all the special attention that is given to um, students, uh, to uh, kids in wealthier families. Life is full of inequities, including that. And I love that colleges have tried to start to say, you know, for low-income kids, they in fact, when we took our kids around college tours, we had colleges say, look, 
we try to look at all the applications and make admission decisions. And then for, for kids who parents can't afford to come here to, to pay the tuition, we try to find a way to help them. They will actually guarantee we'll find a way to let your child come here. So that's kind of a, a decision colleges make. And the other direction, you know, we'll, we'll find money somehow to bring kids here who deserve a chance at a quality education whose parents don't have the means to do that. So colleges make all sorts of decisions that relate to parents having money, not having money, balancing all the equities. As long as they're forthright about it, it's part of life. But this is an outrageous scandal. It's an elitist attitude on the part of these parents deciding that their child so deserves a spot in one of these premier schools, they'll do anything including buy their way into it. I'm glad they got caught. I'm glad they're going to be prosecuted. I'm glad it's a, an example out there for America to say that, no, actually, we don't put up with this kind of dishonesty. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. This is America Can We Talk. Stay tuned. We come back. I'm going to talk about today. In the U.S. Senate, the Senate, even though it has Republican majority, voted against President Trump's emergency declaration to fund the border wall. Lots to talk about in that subject. Stay tuned. And welcome back to America Can We Talk? I'm Debbie Georgiatis. So just uh, an hour before the show started today, the news came out that the United States Senate, with a Republican majority, the Senate is uh, 53 Republican, 45 Democrat, two independent. Even with that, uh, the Republican majority in the U.S. Senate voted, to be precise, in favor of a resolution that would prevent President Trump from using the emergency declaration he made to fund the border wall. Trump came out, and I think it was February 15th or February 5th, sometime in uh, February 15th, came out with a decision that because the uh, budget didn't give him what the House and Senate voted on, didn't give him the spending he wanted in the border wall, President Trump announced he was going to make, and he did make an emergency declaration saying he was going to tap into other funds, other sources of money, including money that was designated for the military for other construction projects to build out the border wall on the southern border. So the House, clearly run by the Democrats, they vote for this resolution. The Senate's now voted for it. Now it's headed to President Trump's desk. It's headed to his desk because he wants to talk about in this resolution the, um, the uh, you know, what he's going to do about it. Now he has, by the way, already said he's going to take it to the Supreme Court. And he's, he's going to veto the Congress and they don't have the votes to override his veto. So Trump's going to have his, his emergency declaration in place. The, the, uh, the Senate and House cannot possibly override his veto. So the issue will head to the Supreme Court. I'm going to tell you why I think the emergency declaration is not only valid, but the emergency is a bigger story. There's a bigger emergency at work here than just the fact that we have a porous, unsecured southern border. But let's start first. We have a short clip from President Trump. He was being interviewed in the, he was in the Oval Office and he gave these few remarks relating to the border wall. Well, I, I don't know what the vote will be. It doesn't matter. I'll probably have to veto. And uh, it's not going to be overturned. And we're going to have our whole thing. It's been, uh, all, the legal scholars all say it's totally constitutional. Uh, it's uh, very important. It's really a border security vote. It's pure and simple. It's a vote for border security. It's a vote for no crime. Okay, so he went on and on, but basically he's, he has promised, this, actually that clip 
was just a few hours ago this morning. So he's going to override the veto. He's going to veto the, the House and Senate. They don't have the votes to override. The vote to override, by the way, a ve- once a president vetoes something, to override the veto requires two-thirds of the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate, and he won't, they won't be able to override his veto in either, in either chamber. I'm in the Senate, it, it, two-thirds of the Senate, was whatever that is, 66, 67 votes, they're not going to be able to get that. They, they have, um, as I say, 53 Republicans. Um, they don't have enough people to get to that, uh, to override his veto. And the House side, the House is even more so. They, don't, they can't get close to the two-thirds to override his veto. So... His emergency declaration will stand. It'll end up in court. There'll be a judge looking at federal court judges. There'll probably be an Obama or Clinton appointed judge looking at President Trump's use of the executive, uh, the emergency declaration, uh, which is a law that Congress passed and, you know, he has every right to use. And there'll be some Democrat appointed judge who will say, you know, this somehow he's not allowed to do it. This is not an appropriate use of the emergency declaration power. It'll end up in the hands of the Supreme Court. It'll end up before those nine judges. And my guess is, as Trump pointed out, there's nothing unconstitutional about this order. So it'll probably end up being upheld. But what Trump, President Trump points to the emergency, the use of this emergency declaration to build the wall he points only to, in his public speeches, of course, he points only to the porous southern border and how we just have just ridiculously insecure southern border. I think it's even bigger than that, though. He did, by the way, in these same remarks this morning where you just heard him, he, he did go on to say part of our problem in America is we have a bunch of laws that need to be changed. And he made reference to our immigration law and how we have chain migration meaning when someone comes here as a, as a legal citizen or legal right to be here, they can bring extended family and they bring more and more and more and more people here, the chain of people coming to America. He talked about the catch and release program where we had many people, especially under the Obama era, captured entering the southern border illegally and then told to show up for some hearing, which they never show up for, compounded with sanctuary cities. So all these people that come over the southern border, even if they are caught, they're released, told to come back for hearing. They don't do it. They end up in some area that is a sanctuary city, or in the case of California, a sanctuary state. And they are, and then, so we have that whole situation. He made reference to that. But, you know, I think it's an even deeper thing. And I want to talk, I really, I, I hope the Supreme Court stands with President Trump and his use of the emergency declaration power. Um, and because it's not just that the Southern border is porous. I want to first give you a few numbers about how bad the southern border is. At the southern border, in the month of February alone, February alone, okay, so we're we're in March right now, so last month, 76,000, 76,325, just call it 76,000 illegal aliens apprehended. And that's only the percent apprehended. I mean, actually caught by border security, by border patrol, 76,000 in one month. And estimates range, of course, and no one knows the exact numbers, but people from border patrol have estimated that they only really catch about 10% of the people actually crossing. So they've caught in one month 76,000. If we went on an annual pace, assuming that number continued, what we had in February, we would be at 916,000 in a year. 
So that's, you know, that's almost a million people that would be only those caught if you, you know, project those numbers out. 40,000 family units in the month of February. 40,000 family unit apprehensions, as you know from that number, they catch people coming across the border and they claim they are families. As they look into the cases, as they examine whether they're entitled to asylum, they discover a lot of them are not families. They are children being trafficked, sex trafficked. They're women being sex trafficked. They're not really family units, but some of them are. Okay, for the first five months of fiscal year 2019, 136,000 family unit apprehensions. The increase, hold on to these your hat here, the increase in monthly family apprehensions between April 2017 and April 2019. So in two-year period, the increase in monthly family apprehensions, the percentage increase in two years is 2,023%. We have not just an un, a completely unsecured and poor southern border, we have a great increase in the number of people trying to get into America illegally. The increase in all illegal alien apprehensions for the last 10 fiscal year months. 97% increase in illegal alien apprehensions. We have the number of large groups of illegal aliens coming in all at once. These caravans we had in the last year, 70 and a caravans, at least 100 people, 70 of them. Um, number of projected aliens taken to American hospitals by the end of the year, 31,000. So we have, it's not an exaggeration when President Trump says we have a major, major problem at the southern border. It's not a minor number. It's, it's not a mere trickle. Okay, the next point is with respect to how many people, when they come to America, come here in order to get onto our welfare system. And when I say welfare system, I mean programs funded by law-abiding, tax-paying Americans non-citizens non-citizens use nearly twice the welfare of native-born americans non-citizens repeat that use nearly twice the welfare of native-born americans so it is not the case that they come here as the picture the american left often tries to paint they're just struggling to come here to work they just want to work and find uh, freedom from repression they really want to come here they're just great people people come here and get on welfare doesn't mean they're bad people. It means there's an enormous strain on our various welfare systems, on all sorts of federal and state programs that give out money, food, and all sorts of other aid. Nearly twice the, the percentage is non-citizens use nearly twice the welfare of native-born Americans. I thought about putting a chart up, but it's too hard to read. Uh, but it is a, it's a massive difference. Non-citizens use welfare at a much higher percentage than American citizens do. I'll tell you something else uh, with respect to this issue. And this is not really just a, uh, it's not a statistical story, but a human story. The American media is so far in the pocket of the radical leftists in this country that the stories relating to people actually injured, killed, harmed, by illegal aliens, they never get told. They don't get told to the American people. So I'm gonna tell you just one very, very briefly. 
It's a news story. And I'm sure you've heard others because you have all sorts of groups that try to report these stories. They have family, you now people form groups saying that their families made up of people whose children or loved ones, family members, were killed by illegal aliens. And they try to make the point. There's a consequence to not having a secure border. But on just a kind of personal story level, Carlos Eduardo Araveo Carranza, age 24, was arrested on Monday of this week for the murder of 59-year-old Bambi Larson, found dead in her home in San Jose on February 28th. Carranza, who has no address, is a known gang member, stalked Ms. Larson through her neighborhood before breaking into her home and attacking her. Carranza is one more in a long line of violent legal aliens who victimized Americans on account of the outrageous sanctuary laws in various jurisdictions. San Jose Police Chief Eddie Garcia revealed Carranzo's lengthy criminal history, which began in 2013 when he was arrested crossing the border illegally in Texas and deported back to Mexico. That was followed by 10 arrests and at least three convictions for offenses ranging from drug possession, battery, false imprisonment, and burglary. When he was arrested for Larson's murder, Carranza was on probation for possession of methamphetamines, paraphernalia, false imprisonment, and burglary. Garcia also revealed ICE had applied nine times. ICE had applied nine times for a detainer on Carranzo, a move which allows suspects to be held longer in their prison term so that immigrant immigration status can be investigated. ICE was on to this person. He's now killed a 59-year-old woman in her home, lengthy criminal record, and our system cannot seem to be on top of this situation. I want to tell you that story just one example, because when Trump says we have an emergency at the southern border, it's not really just at the southern border. It is the crime that comes with the southern border crossers. Yes, there are innocent people. There are people truly fleeing poverty or violence in the countries they come from. But there are also, crossing our border, people like Mr. Carranzo from Mexico, having been deport, arrested and deported once in 2013, having since that time nine arrests, oh, excuse me, 10 arrests for at, le and at least three convictions for offenses ranging from drug possession, battery, false imprisonment, burglary. Again, Carlos Eduardo Araveo Car Carranza, age 24, has now killed an American woman. The consequence of having an insecure border is that innocent Americans die. Innocent Americans are dying at the hands of people who should not be here. Now, my leftist friends will say, well, but lots of American citizens commit crimes. You know, she could have been killed by a, a, an American citizen. Yeah, she could have, but she wasn't. And all the other crime statistics that people tell you, the stories they tell you, they would not be happening if we had a secure southern border. The decision to leave it insecure is monumentally irresponsible.
but it is the wish, it is the mission of the American left. And I'm getting back to why I'm telling you Trump is right to call this a true emergency. He's correct to use the emergency declaration power. He's correct to call it an emergency, not just because of the number of people and some of the bad people crossing the southern border. It is because we have one of the two political parties in our country with no interest in border security, no willingness to secure the border, no willingness to speak the truth about what happens at the southern border, what happens when we have an insecure border. We have a one of the two political parties in this country dedicated to protecting illegal aliens, dedicated to supporting sanctuary cities, dedicated to preventing enforcement authorities of all kinds in sanctuary cities and sanctuary states from reporting people who entered America illegally have no legal right to be here. We have one political party who is simply unwilling to acknowledge that citizenship matters, that there is such a thing in America as the rule of law, that to have a rule of law, you have to have the agreement that the law applies to everyone. And you have to have an agreement that citizenship means something. That citizenship is a category. It's a, it's a, it's a commitment for people who are, want to be citizens in our country to live by our laws, to follow them, to understand you've made a, you have joined a country that is governed by the rule of law. What the left is saying is they don't care about the rule of law. They don't care about the status of citizenship. Compounded with that, the same party on the American left, when they passed the bill, the, you know, everyone can vote and we, we support voter fraud law that the Democrats passed. I mean, it's not a law, it's a bill. The Democrats in the House passed the We Support Voter Fraud Bill, which they called the For the People Act, but it was a complete legalization, a mandate to states to legalize tactics that allow voter fraud, that force voter fraud, that, were, that prevent anyone from, from noticing and stopping voter fraud. The left is pushing voter fraud in this country by that act, and when they have the opportunity during that discussion in the U.S. House, the opportunity to vote on an amendment that at least acknowledged, or amendment by a Republican, at least asked, can we all agree that illegal aliens in the country should not vote. Can we all agree, since you're passing this law, this enabling voter fraud law, Democrats, can you at least admit that, can we confirm, illegal aliens cannot vote in this country? And do you know how many Democrats went along with that? How many Democrats are willing to step up and say, yes, sign on, sign me on, I agree, illegal aliens should not vote? How many Democrats in the whole U.S. House do you think signed on to that? The answer is zero. No Democrat in the entire United States Congress, which is, by the way, 235 Democrats in the U.S. House, not one could even sign on to agreeing that illegal aliens should not vote in this country. And you have jurisdictions. Now, obviously, Congress is making law about federal elections. You have jurisdictions around this country that, that permit, I'm talking about municipal jurisdictions, cities, counties, that permit illegal aliens to vote or that are so that are so determined 
to let them vote, that they won't allow simple things like voter ID, prove you're a citizen, before they let somebody vote. So this is what Trump is facing. Oh, by the way, one more thing. At our northern border, you know, we, we talk about the southern border so much. At our northern border, U.S. and Canada border, what percent of the illegal immigrants who attempt to cross into America from the Canadian border do you think are, are Mexican? I mean, shouldn't it be like zero or five? It is nearly half. Nearly half of the illegal immigrants arrested at the U.S.-Canadian border are Mexican. So I get around to saying when Trump is trying to push the idea that it is an emergency at the southern border, worthy of using his power to declare an emergency, worthy of using monies that have been allotted by Congress to other purposes, including the military, purposes uh, for construction, Trump is not just securing the southern border. He's not just saying in the areas where we have no other way to protect our border other than a wall, we have no means, we don't have sufficient troops, sufficient people, sufficient equipment to protect our border, to stop illegal border crossers, and those spots build a wall. Trump is not just stopping illegal border crossing. He's not just making illegal border, border crossing harder. He is stopping. He is in dead in its tracks. The left-wing determination in this country to overrun America. And I mean by that. When the Democrats in Washington will not fund border security, they will not agree that illegal aliens shouldn't be allowed to vote. Not one Democrat would do that. They will not allow illegal aliens, they will not allow, agree that illegal, you have to be a legal citizen to vote. That if you're illegally here, you can't vote. They won't even agree to that. When we have our systems in our country, we have all sorts of government assistance programs heavily heavily used percentage-wise by illegal by non-citizens mainly illegal immigrants when we have the left chomping at the bit to legalize every legal alien who's in our border regularly talk about amnesty want to give amnesty with they certainly would give citizenship with voting rights to the daca people you end up in our country you end up in our country with a problem that you don't have the American left agreeing that we're going to have a country based on the rule of law, based on the idea that citizenship counts, citizenship matters. The left will not agree to that. Trump is stopping the left's support for, encouragement of, and embrace of the idea that if we overrun the southern border, if we have so many people entering America, who are not, who do not have a legal right to be here, who do not meet our asylum standards, who do not have any other legal status to be here, but the left enables them to get into sanctuary cities, sanctuary states, enables them to live relying on various welfare programs and has a mission to ultimately make those people citizens as soon as they have the White House, the Senate, and the House. What Trump is doing is stopping the American left from overruling and overrunning America's rule of law.
He is stopping this left-wing mission in its tracks. He's exactly right to say the southern border must be secured, not just because we like walls and we like, we like secure borders. It's because we have lost in our country one half that one of the two political parties in our country cannot even agree that the concept of citizenship matters. They could not even agree the rule of law applies. They flaunt the rule of law with sanctuary cities. They flaunt the rule of law with their just waving the hand at the idea that the southern border is insecure. Trump is really stepping up, and this is why I'm extremely aggravated with the Republicans in the Senate who could not stand with him, but that's another discussion for another day. But Trump is really standing up for the idea of re-securing the border and eventually, as he mentioned in his press conference today, getting around to fixing the immigration law, getting rid of chain migration, getting rid of the visa lottery, getting rid of ways that we have random, random in and out people coming into our country and reasserting the idea our immigration policy, our border security policy needs to be and have as its primary goal to protect America. I'm Debbie George Addis. This is America Can We Talk. We're taking a three-second break. And the last thing today, I want to turn and talk to you about the mob mentality overrunning America. Stay tuned. And welcome back to America Can We Talk. Okay, folks. Yesterday on my show, I played Tucker Carlson's. Uh, he did a segment on his show, basically responding to this Media Matters hit piece on him, where Media Matters had grabbed a bunch of ugly clips of him that he put, that he had things he'd said on shock jock shows and, and shows from 10 years or more ago. And then immediately, you know, because of how the left works, is mob mentality overrunning America. In fact, I've been talking about the Marxist mob mentality, and I mean it. Media Matters comes up with this. They think they're going to take Tucker Carlson down because he has a wonderful show, because he has a great show making conservative arguments, making pro-America arguments, drives the left nuts. So that segment I showed, just a short portion of it, but that segment turned out to be the most popular uh, of all. I mean, I don't know what the exact record was, but it broke records and how many people either watched that segment live or went back to watch it later because people loved seeing someone stand up. They loved seeing Tucker Carlson stand up and say, you're not doing this to me. And by the way, the mobs aren't done with him. They've been, the media mob has been piling on his advertisers. He's lost a few. They've been showing up outside his studio, waving signs. I mean, the left is just one big fat mob. And America needs more people like Tucker Carlson to stand up. Other quick examples of this left-wing, and when I say mob minds, oh, by the way, before I forget to tell you, so one guy, a Media Matters guy, in fact, I think he's the um, president, yeah, Angelo Carasoni, C-A-R-U-S-O-N-E, however you say his name, Carasoni, uh, he had a blog, he, it's not active anymore, he used to have a blog in which he made, all, used all sorts of very ugly, ugly ethnic, racial, sexual orientation slurs. The same guy who runs Media Matters, who is telling America you can never listen to Tucker Carlson again, 
did the same. I mean, he used really grotesque language, which I'm not going to say because this is a family show. But I mean, this is the typical hypocrisy of the American left. They can say anything. You can say nothing. If you're on the right, you aren't allowed to talk. This media mob mentality, same way they went after Tucker Carlson. They go after anyone who dares challenge the climate change religion. Anyone who is daring to question the, the true believers, they have, I mean, I Googled today just to list some people, you know, climate, uh, climate skeptics fired. I mean, the stories that come up, I'm not even going to spend the time listing them. Professors lose their jobs if they won't surrender, salute to the left-wing climate agenda. No such thing as discussion. No such thing as, well, let's hear your evidence. What do you think? What's your evidence? What do you think? None of that happens. The left is trying to rule this country by mob. And that is why it's so great Tucker stood up. It's why more climate change skeptics need to keep on speaking up. But the same thing happened with respect to um, Islam when uh, former um, uh, executive and board member Brad Anderson, former CEO of Best Buy, forced out of his job and all board positions for donating money to a question to an, an organization that in turn ran ads questioning about whether we should be alarmed about the Islamization of America. Loses everything, all of his board positions, because he dared do that. Same with uh, people, someone from Facebook, uh, a, a, a person at Facebook, Palmer Lucky, founder of Oculus, placed on leave and then fired from Facebook a few days after the Daily Beast reported that he donated $10,000 to a pro-Trump group called Nimble America. All these examples go on and on. I want to tell you one other one, though, because the reason that this left-wing mob mentality matters so much, and it matters that we understand what they're doing it, why they're doing it, what they're doing, and how we can counter it. Because the left is trying, just like the whole thing that they are doing now to Janine Pirro on Fox. She dared to point out, yes, there is actually a connection between Islam and anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is written into the Quran. And so she tries to make that connection and somehow Janine Perot is a bad guy? I don't think so. We need to recognize the left uses this mob mentality, Twitter mob, media mob conduct to attack anyone who dares speak up. I'll tell you, and this is now trickling down or has trickled down even to colleges and universities. One last story for today's show about the media mob, the Marxist media, a lot of M's here, Marxist media mob mentality. In upstate New York, there is a college called Sarah Lawrence. And I happen to go to St. Lawrence for undergrad, law school Georgetown, but undergrad St. Lawrence. This is not about St. Lawrence, the lovely upstate New York school. This is Sarah Lawrence, barely upstate, just outside of New York City. Sarah Lawrence has a professor, he's still there uh, by the skin of his teeth, has a professor who teaches politics. They keep calling him a politics professor, I guess that's what they call uh, his, um, uh, his job. His name is Samuel Abrams. Samuel Abrams, a Sarah Lawrence politics professor, had the audacity to write an op-ed in the New York Times last year, at the end of last year, in which he basically lamented that in addition to the fact that colleges and universities are filled with political science departments and 
professors, generally speaking, who are overwhelmingly liberal, that the bias of whatever it is, 12 to 1, 15 to 1, 20 to 1, you know, most colleges and universities are filled with left-wing professors, and there's a very rare occasional Republican or maybe even conservative in college campus among their faculty. His op-ed in New York Times pointed out the same is true of college administrators. And he basically said he surveyed 900 college administrators and found that liberal staff members outnumber their conservative counterparts by the astonishing ratio 12 to 1. So he's basically saying, why don't we have, you know, we all love diversity. What about political viewpoint diversity? What about among professors and administrators? Why do we have such a left-wing bias? Okay, so the guy got protested immediately. You know, they had junk written all over his, graffiti all over his door. Someone painted a swastika on his, I think his, I don't know whether, whether it was his office door or somewhere else, but he's been just ridiculed, attacked, um, just the subject of vandalism. Well, now this idiotic group of students on campus, okay, I can't even stand it. They call themselves the Diaspora coalition. They've called for this professor to be removed. This college, by the way, is an elite four-year, $54,000 a year to go there, unless you're a Hollywood parent and you can, okay, I won't go off on that, but these students have a list of demands made to the university. Uh, They want him gone. They want him to apologize. They call his statements hurtful to the, and then they list all of the victim groups. They always are coming up with all the victim groups. Um, they say, um, they, they say, unless Sarah Lawrence gives in to all of their demands, the school will be remembered as for its inability to truly embody the self-proclaimed progressive ideology. They list a, a series of demands, including campus supply laundry rooms must have supplied detergent and softener on a consistent basis. Um, students of color should not be forced to resort to racist white professors. I mean, it goes on and on because the guy said, because the guy, so that now this diaspora coalition is meeting with the president of the university, a woman uh, who is already showing, she's trying to, she's surrendering as fast as she can. Her name is Christy Collins Judd, meeting with this professor to make demands of all sorts, ridiculous, absurd demands because some professor wrote an op-ed saying, hey, how come we all only we have, why we only have liberals in college administrations instead of having a balance? This has outraged this group of young, this mob of young students. They're now holding meetings with the college, making demands and, and issuing idiotic demands about laundry room soap. And this professor, this, this uh, college president, is trying to say, well, we're trying to listen, have a dialogue. I'm telling you, the only way to handle the media mob mentality is to stand them down, just like Tucker Carlson. This, this college professor, she needs to tell those kids, you know what, we're done talking. Any more protests outside his office and you're out. You are either suspended or maybe expelled. Get back to work. We don't listen to demands from any students. You want to negotiate? You want to make a request? Go ahead. We don't do demands. That's what this this college professor needs to say. And if we don't stand up to the mob of the American left, it is not like if you just are silenced, they will surrender. They will stop. There will always be more of the demand, always more of the demand until we lose the country. 
I'm telling you, folks, I'm so bothered, and you should be by this. In fact, this media mob thing, it is part, and we'll talk about this on Monday. We're out of time here today. But this media mob thing is one thing that, that this Covington Christian kid got just assaulted by CNN and everybody else over lies about what happened that in that day in Washington. And he is standing up also. This kid, the kid from Covington Christian, Nicholas Salmon, has now filed lawsuits against CNN, Washington Post. This is what must be done. We have to fight back. We have to fight fire with fire. We cannot just surrender and hope the left will go away because they never will. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. This is America Can We Talk. Tune in every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time. Share everything on Facebook that you can. Comment. Email me at AmericanCanWeTalk at gmail.com. I'll talk to you on Monday. Monday, by the way, we're going to run through all the Democrat candidates who have now declared they're running for president in 2020. I'll give you a whole lot of scoop on all of them. It'll be a great show. Talk to you then. Can we talk truth about America?